0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. What do you know about microchips? For most of us, the answer is not very much. What even are they? Well, today's interview is a bit different. It's going to make a big claim that the future piece of the planet may come down to these tiny pieces of technology that are everywhere. You now, phones, microwaves, computers, toys, everywhere. If we're serious about knowing what's really going on, about looking past the narrative towards the real great power competition for resources, questions like why wars really start, I think we need to get geeky and understand microchips. So, here to help us on this journey, we are joined by Christopher Miller. He is author of the book, Chip War, Battle for the Globe's Computing Power, and he is an Associate Professor of History at Tufts University. Welcome to Unheard, Dr. Miller. Thank you for having me. Before we get into today's interview, a quick reminder to subscribe to Unheard. You go to unheard.com join and it will take you to a place where your mind can be expanded where you can see through the narrative where you'll get up to 10 articles every day, as well as exclusive live discussions that you can take part in online as well as in real life at the Unheard Club here in London. So all of that is yours for less than a pound a week, which is really pretty good value. Let's get on with the show. So I'm going to start really basic, and you're going to have to forgive my questions if they seem a little bit towards that end of things. What is a microchip?
2: A chip is a piece of silicon, uh, often the size of your fingernail, that has millions, or in many cases billions, of tiny circuits carved into it. And these circuits are opened or closed by a device called a transistor, which is just a switch that turns on and off when it is on, it completes a circuit and that circuit produces a one. When it's off, the circuit is interrupted and it produces a zero. And all of the ones and zeros undergirding all computing, whether it's for processing data or storing data, come from these tiny transistors flipping on and off. And so today, if you go to the Apple Store and buy a new iPhone, for example, you'll get a device with uh, multiple semiconductors inside. And just the most important of the semiconductors will have 15 billion of these tiny transistors carved into it, each one of which is smaller than the size of a virus.
1: So it's kind of like the old, the original Second World War era computers where they had whole walls full of switches and circuits have been compressed into these tiny, tiny devices and expanded. Is that a reasonable
2: summary? That's exactly what's happened. The the miniaturization has been what's driven advances in computing power. And so during World War II, the computers that took up the size of an entire room would have had 10 or 20,000 of these switches, different types of switches, but the same basic concept, producing ones and zeros. And over the past 70 years, we've been able to make them smaller and smaller and smaller to pack more of them on a given piece of silicon.
1: Now, What's important about this and why it becomes a big geopolitical issue is that what you're going to tell us is that the vast majority of the sophisticated versions of these chips are made in one place. And that place happens to be the island of Taiwan, which as anyone reading the newspapers recently will know is a highly contested part of the world close to China, which may or may not lead to some kind of conflict in the future. So first of all, why are so many of these crucial devices only made in Taiwan?
2: So if you look at the production of advanced processor chips, the types of chips that process data that you find in a smartphone, a PC, or a data center, around 90% of them are made in Taiwan, uh, which also produces over one third of the new computing power the world adds each year. So Taiwan's importance is really uh, extraordinary when it comes to all of the world's technology. And it's... Uh, managed to acquire this position largely thanks to the efforts of a single company called TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which was founded in 1987 and since that time has grown inexorably. Today, it's both the world's most advanced chip maker and also the world's largest uh, manufacturer of silicon chips.
1: So how comes it when in a world like today where intellectual property is so hard to defend, and famously, the Chinese are pretty good at if they don't just copy it directly, reinventing it in a similar way. How can it be that that this particular technology, understand it's hard, but a lot of things in technology are kind of difficult. Why is it that this has managed to just remain on one island?
2: Well, there's, I think, two main reasons. The the first is that this isn't just hard, this is the hardest manufacturing humans have ever undertaken. We manufactured more transistors last year than there are cells in the human body. We've made more transistors than, they're all, than, than the combined quantity of all manufactured goods in all human history. There, there's nothing we make more of than transistors and nothing we manufacture at such tiny um, uh, scale at massive volume. So it really is the hardest manufacturing humans have ever undertaken, which is why it requires the most expensive factories in human history, some of the most precise machine tools humans have ever under, uh, undertaken to make. There's really nothing that comes close when it comes to the precision and complexity of manufacturing. So it's it's not just hard. It's the hardest thing we know how to produce. And and we can dig into all of the different process steps that are required uh, to make a chip. And at every step, there's just processes that are bending the laws of physics to make it possible to get the computing that's necessary for a modern smartphone. So that's that's the first reason. The second reason why it's hard to copy is that the chip industry races forward at a rate unseen anywhere else in the economy. There's a Uh, A prediction that was made in 1965 by uh, a chemist named Gordon Moore, who was one of the early figures in the chip industry. And he saw at the time that the amount of computing power on a chip, the number of transistors that could be crammed onto a chip was doubling annually. And since that point, every year or two, we found new ways to put more transistors on chips, exponential growth of the type that's been seen nowhere else in the economy. I like to imagine, you know, imagine if airplanes flew twice as fast every two years. And their speed increased uh, at that rate for decades. It's almost inconceivable. The chip industry has delivered that. And so every year or two, they must roll out a new manufacturing process technology that's capable of cramming twice as many transistors on a chip. And so that rate of progress has made it very, very difficult for anyone to keep up.
1: It still kind of goes against what we think of as the rules of technological advancement, doesn't it? Because you think competition is normally the big driver for Big technological leaps forward. Whilst this sounds like it's almost a monopoly, there's literally one company in Taiwan is making 90% of these advanced semiconductors. Are there any other industries where the same thing has happened? I mean, nuclear bombs famously, even that, which is a pretty complicated thing to do, was not confined to certain Western countries. The Chinese have it, Pakistan has it. We are worried that Iran might soon have it. So why was this so different?
2: it has to do with the manufacturing precision. So so making nuclear weapons is, is kind of hard, but actually the North Koreans have figured out how to do it. And so if they can do it, it's not that hard. And, and the reason is that the, the precision involved is is substantial when it comes to nuclear weapons, but there's a fair amount of scope for error. In, in the chip industry, if you have errors measuring in the billionths of a meter, your entire chip can be, um, can, cannot function correctly. And so you've got to be able to manufacture transistors the size of a virus by the billions for each single chip, uh, and the scope for error uh, is is tiny and because there are uh, in many cases thousands of process steps in making a chip, from layering on chemicals to heating the chip to um, to layering on more chemicals to applying different uh, treatments of ultraviolet light, each of these steps has to happen in a way that has tolerances for error also measured in the nanometers. So, it's, it's not just a matter of doing something once and having it work at nanometer scale, it's doing something a thousand times and making sure there are no errors involved, and that that tolerance for error in the chip industry is far, far lower than any other type of manufacturing. Uh, imagine, for example, a car. You know, if, if there are pieces in your car that are a millimeter off, your car is, in most cases, still going to work. Maybe parts of the engine have tolerances uh, for error of less than a millimeter, but not many. In the chip industry, we're talking orders of magnitude more precision than that.
1: And what's so particularly strange about this is that it all comes down to one guy, doesn't it? He's called Morris Chang. Is he still around, Mr. Chang?
2: He is indeed. He's uh, officially retired, although he still plays a big role in the company's uh, uh, decision-making and the company's culture. And he, in many ways, played a critical role in building the entire chip industry. He was present uh, in Texas when the first uh, chip was invented in 1958. He was working for Texas Instruments, a U.S. chip firm at the time. He played a major role in Silicon Valley's decision to globalize the industry and build assembly facilities in East Asia, places like Hong Kong, Singapore, and especially Taiwan. And then since the 1980s, he, when he moved to Taiwan, he's played the, the fundamental role in building TSMC up to be the world's largest and most advanced chipmaker. So, more than anyone else, uh, he can claim to have uh, made possible the semiconductors on which the modern economy is critically dependent.
1: And do we know anything about his politics? because we're going to get to politics in a minute. It's kind of important. He still lives in Taiwan, so he hasn't sold out and moved to California. What, what do we know about what, where he stands in relation to China and the US? Does he ever speak on politics?
2: Well, I think he's, uh, he's, he's done such a good job of business, in part by managing relations with multiple different um, governments. He, he was born in mainland China. His father was an official in the Uh, nationalist government. And when the communists took power in 1949, uh, he and his family fled. He moved to the US and enrolled at at Harvard. Um, Then he spent 30 years working in the US chip industry. He held a US security clearance for working on specialized chips that went into defense systems. And then uh, he got a job offer to start this company in Taiwan, backed by the Taiwanese government, uh, uh, which put up three quarters of the money. Uh, needed to found TSMC Uh, and since then he's lived in Taiwan. He's still a a U.S. citizen um, but has also um, made a a sort of a second iteration of his career uh, in Taiwan and he's he's in some ways one of the most influential people in Taiwan because he runs or founded and and for a long time ran a business that contributes around 10% of Taiwan's GDP. So there are a few people in Taiwan who are more important than he is but he's generally stayed out of politics.
1: So the history in a way is a story yet another example of Western naivety, the kind of fallacy of globalizing everything, uh, of of liberal attitudes to markets, of failing to defend intellectual property. You know, it sounds like this technology was begun in America, and had the story been different, would have remained an American specialism, but they, they let it out. And then another country, in this case, Taiwan, put a whole load of money in it and said, we're going to make this our thing.
2: Is that fair? I, I, think, that's, I think that overstates the case somewhat. I, I think the, the US and the entire world have benefited tremendously from what TSMC has been able to do. They've provided the manufacturing services that have allowed inventions like smartphones to take off and become a product that almost everyone in the world Owns. And although they're the most critical manufacturer of chips, there are other parts of the chip making process the design of chips, the production of the ultra precise machine tools that actually do the manufacturing uh, that are still based in the US or Japan uh, or Europe. And I think if TSMC were based in any other country besides Taiwan, if it was based in Switzerland or based in New Zealand, I wouldn't have any concerns about it because it's been a, a tremendous. Um, the impetus to efficiency and advances in, in the world's tech sector. The problem is that TSMC has grown its capacity in Taiwan over the last two decades, just as America's military advantages around Taiwan have been deteriorating and China's have been growing. And so it's in some ways really the fault of the United States for failing to be able to keep deterrence in the Taiwan Straits effective. And so today, unlike two decades ago, two decades ago it was obvious, if there were a war, who would win? Today it is not at all obvious if there were a war, who would win? And that uncertainty created by our decision to let our military advantages over China deteriorate, that's why we're concerned about production in Taiwan today.
1: Okay, so let's get onto this then, because clearly this is the lens through which we should think about it. Some people argue that the huge significance of Taiwan for semiconductors makes war more likely because China might in some way try and invade to get hold of those semiconductors or the technology. Other people say that it makes war way less likely because war would be devastating. It would probably destroy the factory and they'd end up with no chips at all. So where do you stand on this? Do you think it makes the possibility of conflict between China and the West more or less likely?
2: I think when Chinese leaders assess the situation in Taiwan and think about their goals vis-à-vis Taiwan, they're not primarily thinking about semiconductors. Reality is the Chinese Communist Party has wanted to control Taiwan since before the first semiconductor was invented. Uh, When they talk about Taiwan, they talk about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, these kind of broad ideological slogans, rather than anything specific and technological or economic in nature. And so if we're trying to understand policymaking in Beijing, leaders in China realize that Taiwan produces a lot of chips, but that's not at the center of their thinking. Now, some people say, as, as you mentioned, that Taiwan's role in chip-making deters conflict because China knows that if it were to attack Taiwan, it would destroy the chip-making facilities and the entire world, including China, would pay a, a massive economic cost. And it's true the cost would be tremendous, but there's lots of examples of wars in history that have been waged by leaders who have decided the economic costs were worth it or have underestimated The economic costs.
1: Let's just still sketch out what that disaster would look like. Because I don't think many people understand that. So let's just say whether it's an American bomb, or a Chinese bomb, or maybe the factory self destructs out of some kind of preservation order. Let's just say the entire facility is wiped out. What is the effect on the rest of the world?
2: So chips don't only go in computers or smartphones, they go in almost everything with an on-off switch. Dishwashers, microwaves, coffee makers, automobiles will often have a thousand chips inside. And Taiwan, as, as we mentioned, produces over a third of the new computing power the world adds each year. So it's not only that we'd struggle to produce a smartphone anywhere in the world for the year after Taiwan's facilities were knocked offline, PC production would fall by easily a third, perhaps more. It'd be hard to build a cell phone tower anywhere in the world. That's the impact on tech infrastructure and it'd be disastrous. But also the rest of the manufacturing economy, cars, dishwashers, microwaves, all of that would be tremendously disruptive because even though a lot of those devices don't have the most advanced chips in them, they have a lot of chips in them. And a lot of those chips are made in Taiwan, which is why if we were to lose access to Taiwan's chips due to a war or a blockade, the impact on global manufacturing would be as dramatic as anything we've seen since the Great Depression.
1: So I don't want to over dramatize further, but it really does feel like this is the sort of way that whole eras could change. You know, when the famous cliches is like the decline of the Roman Empire, periods where it felt like the technology was so permanent and so everywhere that it would never disappear. And then things start to go wrong. And then there are some specific calamities like the one you're describing. Imagine a world which could happen within five or 10 years, where suddenly mobile phone coverage isn't universal, where computers are harder to come by, are slower. People are, you know, going on auction rooms to find secondhand MacBooks from 15 years ago and rewiring them. The whole of civilization could actually slow to some kind of crisis point. Is
2: that, am I overdoing it,
1: Christopher? You've got to hold me back here. (laughs)
2: I mean, we would eventually succeed in, in building up chip making capacity at the cutting edge in the US, in Europe, in Japan, but it would take years, not just one year, half a decade, probably longer to fully rebuild what we'd lose in Taiwan. And in that time period, we would have a lot fewer smartphones and PCs and cars and dishwashers. And so standards of living would fall dramatically across the entire world.
1: Okay, so now we've got the situation as it is now which is that pretty much the entire world is reliant on a single industry that is enormously concentrated on a particular island, which is pretty much the most politically fraught place on the planet, and the nexus of the great power conflict of our time between China and the US. That's the situation as it is. Put into this mix, America's response. So there's this act called the CHIPS Act, which no doubt is an acronym for five other words. That's what Americans like to do with their laws. But let's just leave it as the CHIPS Act. That is a response to this pressure in some way. What does it do? And is it making the situation more or less dangerous?
2: The CHIPS Act is trying to make it less costly to build chip-making facilities in the U.S. The goal is to reduce reliance on Taiwan by building new capacity in the US and providing subsidies for companies to do that. So uh, both US firms and also foreign firms that build in the US will be able to apply for subsidies uh, to help defray the cost of of production. And it's already clear that there's new investment coming in uh, to the US that wouldn't have happened otherwise thanks to these subsidies. Uh, the, The challenge is that we've in the US allocated $39 billion to subsidies. One new chip making facility can cost $20 billion so thirty nine billion sounds like a lot of money, but in fact, it's not that much money. And our reliance on Taiwan is so substantial uh, that we're going to need vast new construction not only in the U.S. but also in Japan and Europe and Singapore and elsewhere to begin to really diversify the manufacturing base. So I think the Chips Act is a is a important, helpful first step, but on its own, it's not going to be enough to dramatically uh, reduce our reliance on Taiwan.
1: Okay, well, that's that's one aspect of the CHIPS Act, which is that it it awards money and it helps internal investment to try and get a semiconductor industry probably going in the US 50 years too late, you could argue, but maybe it's starting to happen now. Isn't the other aspect the sanction aspect that it really tightens sanctions on China specifically, um, trying to make sure that their place in the race towards getting their own sort of homemade chip making facility is behind America, how is that working? And is that making things more or less dangerous itself?
2: So the the CHIPS Act bans any company that receives US government funding from also investing in cutting-edge facilities in China. And then relatedly, uh, via a separate regulation, the US government also banned last year the transfer of cutting-edge chip-making tools and cutting-edge AI chips to China. And because although Taiwan is the country that can manufacture chips most efficiently, the tools inside of the facility in Taiwan and inside of every advanced shipping facility in the world are produced by US, Japanese and Dutch firms. There are five companies that play a big role in the production of these ultra precise machine tools. And so the US wants to stop these tools from going to China with the aim of stopping China's chip industry from catching up. Uh, And this is going to cause dramatic problems for China's firms because Uh, For the past several decades, they've made real advances, but they've made real advances by relying on imported tools. And there are no Chinese firms that can produce comparable tools domestically. So right now, China's chip industry faces a dilemma whereby they can produce not cutting edge chips using tools they import, but they can't produce cutting edge chips because they can't get the machinery that's necessary from the US, from Japan, or from the Netherlands.
1: So that sounds like they're working. It's a, is this a rare case of sanctions actually doing the job they were intended to?
2: I, I think they're certainly working in terms of having an impact on the Chinese chip industry. But that's actually only the, the intermediate goal. The, the long-run goal of the export controls is to stop China from developing um, advanced AI systems that can be deployed to military and intelligence uses. And to train an AI system, you need access to the most advanced chips in a, a vast data center. And so the US's goal is really over the next decade to make it harder for China to acquire the chips needed to train AI systems so that China's intelligence and military systems are less capable than they otherwise would be. And America is able to apply AI faster than China. That's that's the goal. And so I think that's the success or failure of that will be measured over five or 10 years. It can't really be measured today, because we're talking about capabilities that will be developed in uh, some years' time.
1: So you kind of hit on the the major issue there, which is, we've talked about microwaves and computers and cell phones and friendly family-based tools like that. But of course, these ships are also used in weapons. Um, And missiles aren't just things you sort of point and shoot. These days, they have computers on board and they're carefully guided. What do you think the military aspect of this is? Is Is that central to
2: the whole equation? Well, It is. And and today the concern isn't only the specific chips that are in missiles or in planes that are guiding them, but more important than that is the chips that are in the data centers where AI systems are trained. So if you want to train a car to drive autonomously or a drone to fly autonomously, you do it in a data center. And these data centers are immensely computationally intensive. What it means is If you wanna train a computer vision algorithm to recognize a cat versus a dog, you need to show it millions and millions of pictures of cats and dogs before it learns. And you need ultra advanced chips to actually do that processing efficiently. And so for training drones, for training defense systems, uh, advanced data centers are key, which means advanced chips are key. And that's what militaries are really focused on right now. If you want more autonomous, smarter military systems, you need to train them in advanced data centers. And that's the key use of chips in next generation military systems.
1: So this might seem like another naive question. But as someone who's seen a bunch of James Bond films, you feel like someone should be able to steal these things? Or you feel like either someone's going to hoard them, there's gonna be a chip mountain somewhere, someone's waiting for this to become a scarce and extremely valuable commodity, and then they're going to start gradually selling them. Or someone's going to be selling them under the counter to the Chinese. How has that not happened?
2: Well, it's, it's certainly going to happen. We see that with Russia today, for example, it's now illegal to transfer uh, many different types of chips to Russia for military purposes, but Russia's smuggling them in from Turkey and Kazakhstan and, and from China. The types of chips the U.S. is controlling for AI purposes are different um, because they're only used in a relatively small number of use cases. And the data centers that we're worried about are vast buildings that can be seen from space. So it's it's hard to say we're gonna stop a 100 types of a given chip from getting into Russia. I'm pretty confident the Russian security ser- uh, services can smuggle most of those in. But if you're talking about bringing in tens of thousands of chips to fill up an advanced data center, and we know where all of China's most advanced data centers are, that's a much more tractable problem for intelligence agencies to keep an eye on.
1: This also might seem irrelevant, but I'm really interested. The Bitcoin mining centers, that are cropping up in weird places around the world to try and mine Bitcoin. Presumably, they take a lot of chips. Is the are we wasting our precious chip resources on creating these imaginary currencies?
2: Yeah, it's it's because you create new Bitcoin by intense computations, having the most advanced chips and chips that are specially designed for Bitcoin mining uh, gives you an advantage. And so there has been a lot of focus over the past couple of years, less so uh, since the, the, the price of cryptocurrencies has fallen, um, but still substantial in getting specific chips for Bitcoin mining purposes.
1: So if we zoom out for a second, then, we, we have a, a situation where it's basically a race, it seems to me, once again, between the U.S. and China, as to who can onshore sophisticated chip production fastest.
2: Is, is that how you see it? I think that's how China sees it. I, I think the U.S. sees it slightly differently because the, the U.S. is capable of producing advanced chips, not on its own, but in cooperation with Japan, with the Netherlands, with Korea and with Taiwan. And it's only by acquiring software designs, machine tools, materials from all of those countries that you can make an advanced chip. And so the the US strategy is is not to onshore everything. It's not to create a self-sufficient sphere, but it's to cut China out of the international supply chain, but keep all of its existing allies together. And and the goal of that is to say that we collectively are going to produce chips and sell it to 80% of the world economy. China's going to try to produce chips using less advanced machines and selling it only domestically to 20% of the world's economy. And that puts China in a very bad competitive position. Smaller market, worse machine tools, starting from a, a position of backwardsness. It's a race that China doesn't look likely to win.
1: And as far as you know, there's no secret solution that someone has come up with. Uh, you know, Mr. Chang hasn't actually taken some of his secondhand equipment set up another secret factory somewhere in Alaska that only the US government knows about. There is nothing like that.
2: No, and I, I think we can pretty confidently say that there there won't be anything like that. The chip industry is so complex. The number of firms is involved is so large uh, that there's not a whole lot of secrecy uh, in the business when it comes to building uh, a a large and cutting-edge fab. These are also buildings that you can very easily see from space. You can Uh, trace the vast power consumption, the huge water consumption, which is necessary for chip making. It's not something you can easily hide.
1: I'm going to ask you to do a prediction for us, Christopher. I know some people don't like it, but we've had people on this show, we've spoken a lot about the China issue. Um, We had a guy called Louis Vincent Gave, who is a close analyst of China, who was very confident. He said he doesn't think there is going to be much Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. And his view was that they're gradually succeeding in getting quite a lot of the IP out of Taiwan to hiring senior officials. And gradually, they figure they're going to solve the chip issue anyway. And he thinks they're going to, he doesn't think it's going to happen. Meanwhile, we've had other people who are convinced that we're going to see something a blockade, maybe even a full scale war within two years. And a lot of people I talk to give that kind of timetable on it. Where do you stand? Do you, do you, when we have you back in two years time, do you think, well, let's let's give you a bigger window, let's say five years' time. Do you think there will have been a major military standoff in the area around Taiwan, which would lead to major global hostility? Or do you think that will never have happened and we'll look back at this time
2: of worry and roll our eyes? I think the most likely outcome is that we have a period of tension, but we avoid a major military standoff. But if you ask me to put a probability on it, I'd, I'd give you a 20% probability over five years, and that's a much higher probability than I put on it five years ago. And I think if, if you think through, accept my probability of a 20%, 20% probability of both a very dangerous military situation and an economic crisis that would be equivalent to the Great Depression in terms of its shock to manufacturing we ought to be willing to spend a lot in terms of money, in terms of uh, diplomatic attention, in terms of military resources to avert this type of crisis. And my fear is that we're not spending nearly enough given that the probability is far from zero and the magnitude of the shock would be huge, catastrophic.
1: Yeah, 20% chance of a global crisis like that sounds a little bit too high to me. Christopher Miller, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There you have it. I promised you everything you need to know about semiconductors and microchips in under half an hour. And there you have it. Thanks to Christopher Miller, whose expertise knows no bounds on this topic. And I agree with him. 20% chance of global catastrophe, possibly war, and economic devastation akin to the Great Depression sounds like too high a percentage to my tastes. And obviously, I wish this was not the situation. Thanks to him. Thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard.